Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Morning, everybody. It's good to be together, isn't it? Isn't it awesome to be together worshiping in this place? I don't normally listen to much Waylon Jennings, um, but uh, one of his songs, not one of his hits, uh, but I think maybe his best lyrics, listen to them. Blow you old restless wind, up to your old tricks again. Bear down you Texas sun, you make the deserts dry and the brush fires run. Splintered wood, rusty chains. This old front porch swing remains, a pendulum of memories. Goes back and forth on a summer breeze, singing old church hymns and nursery rhymes from the days way back before my time with a little child upon my knee, singing every sweet word back to me. Look how far I had to come to get back where I started from. I love that line. With a child's wisdom passing time, singing old church hymns and nursery rhymes. Then listen to this. I've run the race, I've walked the wire, I paid the price of my desire. And the only time I've known it all was just before I took a fall. So how you lone coyote song fade to sapphire, Sky of dawn, count me in the lucky men to send the world around again. Singing old church hymns and nursery rhymes from way from the days way back before my time, with a little child upon my knee, singing every sweet word back to me. Look how far I had to come to get back where I started from. With a child's wisdom passing time, singing old church hymns and nursery rhymes. That's that line stuck with me. Look how far. I had to come to get back where I started from. You know, I think about that a lot because as you, as you ride this ball around the sun, it seems as if we run through cycles and we find ourselves back where we were. You know, you, you invest in a family and you've got all these kids running around and they consume your time, your mind, your energy, your money, and everything else. And then one day they all just sort of disappear. And you look over at this wife of, you know, 35, 37 years, and you say, look how far we had to come to get back where we started from. Then all of a sudden, little guys start rolling into your world, and the same toys that were scattered all over the house are scattered again. And, you know, you go to get in the tub, and there's turtles in your tub, ninja turtles and every other kind of thing, and you got to clean out the tub before you can get in. And you look at your wife, and you go, look how far we had to come to get back where we started from. But you know, spiritually it happens too. We drift. The sad thing is we never drift toward Jesus. When we drift, we drift away. Because you have to be intentional and you have to be committed to move toward Jesus. But when you stop doing that, you know, your walk with Christ is like riding a bicycle up a hill. You're either going or you're coming, but you're not staying. And the minute you stop that commitment and those intentional moments with Christ, you begin to drift. And people drift. You know, they were in church, raised in church, doing church, loving Jesus, loving Christian stuff, and then all of a sudden, you look around, they're not there anymore. There's a lot of people that have drifted these days. The pandemic has allowed a lot of drift. And then they drift into other things, and they begin to do things, and falling in deeper sin. And all of a sudden, the joy and the freedom and all of that life that they knew, they thought that 
this would lead to greater freedom, but instead it's led to greater bondage. And they're covered up in guilt and shame. That world that used to be whole is now fragmented. And they look in the mirror and they say, man, what will make me whole again? How do I find that? And you even begin to wonder, you know, where is God in this? And can He really help me? Have I gone too far? Have I fallen too low? And then someone stumbles into your world or you stumble into theirs and they remind you of the things that you knew at the beginning. They remind you that God loves you and that His grace extends beyond the furthest sin that you could ever do. And all of a sudden that healing and restoration comes and you find the joy of your salvation and you sing out, look how far I had to come to get back where I started from. That's my prayer for you. If you drifted away, that you would sing old Wayland's song. But you know, it's true of us individually. It's also true of us collectively. This pandemic has blown through the church and just wreaked havoc. Some people came, I guess, out of habit. And if it's a habit to attend church, it's easy to break a habit. And now they're out. Other things have happened. You know, I don't know. We still got a lot of you who are with us on our online campus. And we're so grateful that you're still with us for whatever reason, whether it's COVID related or some other thing, maybe distance or, or something like that. And that's perfectly understandable. And we're, we're grateful for being able to speak truth into your life, even at a distance. What a world, right? But for others, it's not so much. It's almost as if uh, the church got hit by a tornado, you know, and it picked us up and spun us around like Dorothy's house. And then it whoom, landed us in a new place, unfamiliar, just like Dorothy. And we walk out the door and we look at the landscape now of American society and culture, and we say, we're not in Kansas anymore. It's now the world of the nuns and duns. You know what I mean when I say nun? Those are the people who on the survey where it says religious preference, check the box, none. And the duns are those who when asked, when are you coming back to church? They'll say, we're not coming back, we're done. And in this day, this beautiful country that was in God we trust and founded upon all those principles and ideas has become increasingly post-Christian. And it's not the same old world that we look at. Even two years later, it's... You know, look, the pandemic didn't do all this. It was already happening, but it sped it up. And here's the crazy thing for us as a church. Jumping forward in culture has pushed us about 10 years back in attendance. And so I look at this church on Sunday morning, and I, I'm reminded of 2009. And I sing that song in my head, look how far we had to come to get back where we started from. You know, and at first, I, it, it really grieved me because it's like a starting over thing, you know. And a lot of pastors, just to be honest with you, they're quitting. They're retiring. They're quitting. They're like, I don't want to do it again. And I was grieving. And then all of a sudden, I realized I'm excited. I mean, this is a brand new year. 2009 is gone forever. We'll never get back to 2009. We're not trying to get back to 2009. You can't go back. All we've got is 2022 and moving forward from 2022. What's it going to look like? And all of a sudden, I began to realize that God has given us an opportunity here to start again. Who was it? Henry Ford said that failure is an opportunity to start over more intelligently. We've got the opportunity to start over again. And so while we've gone back in time, 
We've got this brilliant future ahead. It's almost like, you know, that line from Teddy Roosevelt. I wish I was more like Teddy Roosevelt. He said, you know, there's nothing in life quite so exciting as to be shot at without result. And it feels almost like, you know, the enemy has taken his best shot. And here we are still standing, still the vibrant body of Christ. And, And the truth is, even though our church has decreased numerically, Something more important seems to be happening. We're smaller in number, but we seem to be greater in power. I can't explain it. It's, it's Isaiah 40, 31. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. And so we face a new future and new challenges invigorating. I love a challenge. And it feels good to get back where we started from because we remember who we are. We remember who Jesus is. We remember what He did for us. And we remember what He's called us to do. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I found your deeds completed in the sight of your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And that's where I want us to be for the next few weeks. I want us to remember what we've received and heard. And I want to focus on foundations because foundations anchor us to God's purpose and principles so that we can stay true to our mission as we take the future, I take on the future. That's what foundations are for. Back in my seminary days, Uh, I had to read a lot of books on leadership because my emphasis was on leadership. And one of the books that I read was a book by a couple of guys named Collins and Porras. They were Stanford University professors, and they examined the exceptional companies. They took 18 exceptional companies, and over a six-year period of time, Stanford University did this series of studies, and the, the the end result was a book that they wrote called Built to Last. And they compared these exceptional companies to their rivals who were good, they just weren't exceptional. And they came up with two uh, concrete ideas that that came from it. The criteria uh, for each was that uh, they had to be at the top of their field, they had to be founded prior to 1950 because they wanted a track record in history, and they compared those companies. Here's what they discovered. The visionary companies built a corporate culture around two governing principles. First, preserve core values and core purpose. Core values, core purpose. And second, change cultural and operating practices, specific goals and strategies to meet the changing environment. They said the great companies share an unmistakable set of core values, a blend of vision and cherished ideas that transcend profit and shareholders. And here's what I came to to understand. That's also true in the church because strong foundations allow for flexible methodology. Did you hear that? When there's a strong, and, and I realize it's like this, when you've got a house and you've got a really good, strong foundation, you can, you can remodel the house. You can change some things around. You can make it more contemporary. You can make it whatever you want it to be and because that foundation allows you to move some things around. But if you don't have a strong foundation, then the house has to find its strength in other ways. And one of the ways might be to build walls out of stone or brick, or something that's strong. And the walls become the means of support. It's always a little unstable because without a foundation, you're never going to get true stability. But it has a feeling of stability. And churches are like that. They have built their walls 
out of stone, those things that ought to be fluid and flexible and able to move around. They built them out of stone because they didn't build a foundation. And so the methods become intractable and they can't change them and they can't adjust and they can't meet the needs of the future because they don't have the foundation. So we got to go back to foundations and those foundational things. The world has changed, and the methods that we used to use won't work now, so we need to remember our foundations. Well, let's go back to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this is the core, this is what God wants you to do. This is why He left you here. You ever wonder, why did God leave me here? I mean, you're saved, right? Why not go on to heaven? Why did He leave you here? Because He wants to use you to speak God's love and truth into other people's lives. And here it is, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came, came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So it starts with the authority. I'm not doing this on my own. It's, it's the authority delegated through the power of Jesus Christ to us. All authority has been given to us. Now here's what I want you to do. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the only command in this statement, make disciples. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here it is, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. For the next five weeks, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back for the next five weeks, we're going to look at foundations. And we're going to talk about today, first of all, message, and then mission, and then maturity, and then methods, and then multiplication, and mind. These are the very ideas that I preached on in 2002, 2003, as the church was just beginning to sort of fulfill its purpose. And so let's start with the message, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe what? All that I commanded you. And we understand from that, that's the broader context of the Bible itself. And so that becomes authoritative for us. What are we all about? We're about teaching the Bible because the Bible is our authority. And so our foundation is a commitment to the Word of God, the authority over our lives. And you know what that means? Here's the first thing it means. It means I can't change the Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, look at this, let him be accursed. Wow. Even if an angel tries to change this thing, he's cursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, this is verse 9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So we can't change it because if we change it, we're cursed. And that means a couple of things. First of all, it means we must not take away from the Bible. We can't monkey with the meaning of what it says. Uh, you know, one of the accusations against Jesus was that he was, uh, he was undermining the law. So in Matthew 5, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish. I've come to fulfill. The law says the wages of sin is death. And Jesus said, look, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to change that. That's true for everybody. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fulfill that law. And he did that on the cross, right? He took the full punishment from sin upon himself on the cross. And then he says this, Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, and, and I think this is interesting, until heaven and earth pass away, now underline this part, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, not the smallest jot or tittle, I think the KJV says, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. You know what that means? That means I can't even change the, the strokes. I can't change the exclamation points and the, the hyphenations and the commas. Um, 
It's crazy, but sometimes, you know, you can change one little thing and change the whole thing. You can change a comma and change the whole meaning. I came across this. Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. But watch what happens when you add the commas. Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. It's a little different, isn't it? I read the story years ago about Tsar Alexander who had condemned a man to prison in Iberia and sent the note, pardon impossible, comma, to be sent to Siberia. His wife, Maria Fedorovna, um, was gracious and kind and very beloved by the people of Russia. She was from Denmark. And uh, when she sees this note, she changes one comma and the whole situation. So rather than saying pardon impossible comma to be sent to Siberia, she wrote pardon comma impossible to be sent to Siberia. And the guy was released. That's why we can't monkey with the thing. Even the letters and strokes are important. Every part of it is divine. The Bible says that, that it's God breathed. And this word of God has authority over our life. And so when it comes to the Bible, we leave the commas where they are. And let me say this. Sometimes that can create some real issues, especially in this world today, because parts of this book don't fit modern society. And there are things that it says that people in our world today don't want to hear. And so it's hard for guys like me who have to stand up and and submit themselves to the authority of the Word. Because it would be so much easier if I could stand up here and say, you know what, guys? You guys are awesome. This is your best life. Go out and live it today. Enjoy every aspect of it. I'm okay, you're okay. Now let's just all have a big warm hug, and let's go out and love ourselves the way we ought to love ourselves, and everybody just be happy. Right? Man, I'd love to do that. But think about what that does to the cross. If I'm okay and you're okay, then why was Jesus on the cross? I mean, that sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. If he didn't have to go to the cross, why did he? Why would anybody go through that if it weren't necessary? And so by saying that, first of all, I undermine the authority of the cross. And secondly, have I really helped you? Because here's the thing. You're not okay. And you know you're not okay. And you know there's stuff in your life that has caused this tremendous grief and guilt and shame and brokenness. We live in a world that is saturated from the sin of the sub-social sewer that has just poured in and permeated every aspect of life. And it's stunning to hear the testimonies of confession coming out of the retreat ministry and other places where people are really getting honest about who they are and what's going on in their life. And what I realize is how terribly broken people are. So if I'm going to stand up and say, hey, everybody, let's all just be fine and let's be happy with ourselves. Have I not done the worst thing possible? And that would be like going to a doctor, you've got cancer, you're at the oncologist, and he says, look, you don't really have cancer, don't worry about it, just go home and live your best life. Isn't that what happens? But the truth is, we need the healing that comes through Jesus. And so we stay with the Bible because it's the only place where I find life. You know, John 6, Jesus had... uh, He had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Maybe you remember that story. On the next day... 
the people come back and they want to get fed again. And he gives them the bread of life sermon. It's a very unpopular sermon because he basically says, and they miss the whole metaphorical aspect of it, but he says, look, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the point was, if you, if you receive me, you're going to stop being so hungry all the time because there's a, there's a God-given Jesus hunger in every one of us. There's a Christ-shaped void in every spirit that says, I will find no rest until it rests in Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, which comes down from heaven. Eat me, you'll never hunger again. They didn't get it. And most of them started to walk away. I mean, the whole crowd walked away. And uh, Jesus turned to his disciples and says, you guys leaving too? And man, Peter, you know, Peter was either on or off. And this day he was on, don't Peter. And he said, where else would we go? Because you alone have the words of life. We're committed to this word because it's the only place where we have the words of life. And I can't take away from that. Secondly, we can't add to the Bible. Look, every cult adds to the Bible. I mean, the Mormons have the Book of Mormon. Jehovah Witness have the Watchtower Tract Society. Islam has the Koran. All those people start out and say, Jesus is a good guy. We like Jesus. Jesus is a prophet. He's a good teacher. He's this or that. But he's not what the Bible says he is. And we've got another text out here to prove that. So everybody always adds to it. Now listen, when you add your word to his word, to this word, you change the authority of his word. You got it? When you add... Your word to this word, you change the authority of His word. And eventually, here's what happens. In churches, we'll have some great idea and it'll become a method and we'll use it and it'll become effective. And so then, over time, it becomes tradition. You know, in a Baptist church, you do it three times, it's tradition. And so now it becomes tradition and after a while after that, it becomes codified into law and we codify our, our traditions we canonize our traditions, and then eventually what happens is the tradition becomes the thing, and we can't violate that tradition even though it makes no sense anymore. And uh, we put it in the Scripture. Some of the things we might put into Scripture might be wise and reasonable, but they aren't biblical. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Dress codes. Dress codes. You remember the day when churches were suits only? I do. You know what? I sat up in church one day and I realized me and the funeral home guy were the only two guys still wearing suits. And I'm like, I want to dress like people dress because the suit at that point becomes like a, 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 cos a priest Cossack. You know, but there's some people, man, you got to dress a certain way to come to church. I mean, we had this lady in our church named Frances. She was a godly old saint of a lady, but, you know, had some chains to her traditions. And I had a good friend named Harold. Harold was kind of a mentor to me. He was in his 50s. I was in my 20s. Sometimes on Sunday nights, he'd come in late and he wouldn't have any socks on. He liked to wear uh, topsiders without socks. And maybe he was doing something. He comes in late. And I remember Francis used to eat him alive over that. Harold, you've got, don't have your socks on today. And I remember one time Harold looked at her and he said, well, Francis, it's either come without socks or not come at all. Now, what do you want? And she said, well, it'd probably be better for you not to come. <laughs> Music styles. Did you know that in, we always think that what we're going through, we're the only group that's ever gone through it. Speaking of music wars, did you know that uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon called his music team the war department because they were always fighting over music? That was in 1880. Insistence on certain translations, 
King James was good enough for Paul. It's good enough for me, right? Except it wasn't written until 1611. Forms of liturgy, cultural mores. For some, it's denominational type. You know, some people think that you got to be a part of a certain denomination to go to heaven. And Baptists are kind of bad about this. We don't say that, but we kind of think it, you know. We had a guy at our church in another church, uh, and this crusty old deacon, uh, not in this church, different. We don't have any crusty old deacons here. Um, but uh, this guy was was in the church, and then he left the church and went to a charismatic church, an Assembly of God church, where it was much more expressive. And then for some reason, after a while, he left the Assembly of God church, and he went to the Methodist church. So this crusty old deacon runs into him in the hardware store, and he says, Mike, where are you guys going to church now? He said, we're going to the Methodist church. And the deacon said, well, you went from too much religion to no religion at all. (laughs) I'm just kidding if you're a Methodist, but that's the way people think. Not us, but everybody. That's, you got to be in this. Hey, let me ask you, do you know this, don't you? There won't be any Baptists in heaven. Did y'all know that? Y'all know that, don't you? There won't be any Church of Christ or Assembly of God or Presbyterians or Methodists or non-denominationalists or any of that. You know that. There's only one kind of person in heaven. You know who it is? It's a Christian. We know that. We know that, right? But see, tradition can be tied to what we believe to such an extent that it takes the weight of Scripture. Look, some traditions are born from wisdom some from personal preference, some from ignorance, and some from pride. And sometimes there's a place for for it, and sometimes there's not, but they're all just traditions, and traditions should never be added to the Bible. The message of Jesus was simply this, one man, one life, one way. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's my only hope. That's my only truth. I can't change that. Second thing, and I'm done, I can't change the Bible. I can only do what it says. Look again at Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Notice it doesn't say teaching them all I commanded you. It doesn't say, what does it say? Teaching them to what? Observe. And what does the word observe mean? It means to do. It's not enough to know, right? Teaching them to observe. The focus isn't study. I know some people who know every aspect of the Bible. They've got it like super underlined with different uh, colored highlighters and tabs everywhere and marks and every cross-reference chased down. And they know it, they know it, they know it, but they're mean people. Some of the meanest people I've ever known know the most about the Bible. It's not enough to know. It's not just about reading. I came across this. I don't know if you saw this. This is stunning. Barna Group recently did a study to determine what city in America has the most Bible reading. You know what city in America? I'm talking about the whole country, the whole big America, 350 million people. What city in America has the most Bible reading in the whole country, according to the Barna Group? Monroe! Monroe, Louisiana, when asked, how many of you read your Bible every week, Monroe checks the box more than anybody else percentage-wise. We've got the most Bible readers in the country. I was pretty excited about that. I thought that was pretty cool because, you know, it has to be reflected on the pastors, right? I mean, it must be because we're doing such a great job. 
But then I read this statistic. 2022, top 100 most dangerous cities in the U.S. <laughs> Monroe, Louisiana is back in the number one spot this year as the most violent city in America. We got the reading part down. We're, we're still working on the doing part. We got more Bible readers than anybody, but we also have more violent crime per capita. Knowledge is important, but knowledge is never the objective. He didn't call us to know, He called us to do. And when you know and do, your life is changed. The Bible has the power to change your life. I'm reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago. It's gritty and it's hard to get through because so much of it is about torture and the Soviet system. But what I didn't know about uh, Solzhenitsyn was he actually fought for the Russian army in World War II and was a decorated soldier, was captured by the Germans, went to a German POW camp. He was all in on Marxism. He was all in on the Soviet dream. He was a big time Soviet. But while he was in that German POW camp, he wrote a letter back home. And in that letter back home, he referenced Joseph Stalin as, quote, the boss. And apparently in the Soviet structure, that was a no-no. And so when they liberated his POW camp and Solzhenitsyn came back to Russia, he was arrested by the Soviets as a dissident. And at first they put him in front of a firing squad and they were going to kill him, but right up to the point where they said, ready, aim, before they said fire, they released him and they, they sentenced him to eight years in Siberia in a gulag. And before he went into that gulag, someone handed him a Bible, a New Testament. That's all he had to read for the next eight years. And he poured over the pages of that Bible and he slowly came to terms with his own condition. You see... Solzhenitsyn had always blamed sin on someone else, the communists, the bad people, the world out there, the dark side. But he was confronted with his own truth, and he came to learn that the darkness isn't out there, it's in here. So listen to his words. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So bless you prison for having been in my life. One man with a Bible can be changed forever. That's the power of this book. And it's not a nebulous thing to me. In 1977, I finally gave my heart to Jesus. And I was kind of on and off. It was kind of a, a, a rocky start for me spiritually. My parents went through a divorce. Some other things were going on in my life. But eventually, it sort of planed out, and I found my plane in 78. Um, I started really walking with Jesus and became fully committed. And then when I came around to, to college in, in fall of 79, I started a dorm Bible study in my dorm room. Had about six guys. Sometimes we'd get up to 12 and they'd come and would teach the Bible. And my brother, who at the time was a non-believer, he's a very, very good tennis player, nationally ranked, um, playing tennis in college. He, uh, he would attend the, the study every so often. Wouldn't say much, just kind of sit quietly. And uh, 
Then after that semester, I went off to a different college to study ministry, and um, I, I started realizing a change was occurring in my brother's life. It became very obvious, and he became a, a faith person and gave his life fully over to Jesus. And today, he just does incredible things internationally, helping missionaries and other things go on. God's really using him. It's really a tremendous story. And I'd love to sit here and go, you know what? I led my brother to Jesus. But the truth is, that's not what happened. It didn't happen at all. The truth is, he picked up the Word of God, the Bible, by himself, and on his own, he started to read it. And as he read it, with nobody else helping him, he began to realize what Solzhenitsyn learned, that the line of good and evil doesn't pass between other people. It passes right through my heart. And I've got to come to a point myself where I accept my own responsibility in it and I give my life over to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he was forever changed simply from the Word of God. And then you know what he did? He started teaching a dorm Bible study. And it is so annoying because when I taught it, it was 6 to 12 people. When he taught it, it was 40 to 50 I'm like, you're not even in ministry. So I can tell you today, the message is the main thing. It's not that emotional experience of the moment, it's the message. The Bible says it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can pierce down to the bone and the marrow, and it can change your life forever. If you will read it, believe it, and obey it. And that's our foundation. Look how far we had to come to get back where we started from, right? It's right there. It's the Word of God. So I want to ask you to make a commitment. Will you do this for me? Will you make a commitment to read your Bible? But let's don't stop there. We're already doing that, right? Let's get that violent crime rate down. <laughs> let's obey it too. Would you do that? So here's a commitment I want you to make. God... I'm going to spend time in your word every day. And what you reveal to me is what I'm going to do. Can we make that together? Now, look, if you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you the word of God will change your life. But you've got to be willing to let it. So would you let the word of God speak into your life right now? Maybe other people have already spoken the word into your life and it's time for you to give your life over to Jesus. Would you do that here this morning? Let's just pray together and let's make this commitment. Father, we commit to you that we are going to read your word, believe your word, and do your word. This week, we're going to start and we're going to read your Bible. I'm going to read your Bible every day. Maybe five minutes, maybe two minutes, maybe a, whatever I can give. But Father, I'm going to read it. And whatever you reveal to me, that's what I'm going to do. Father, we thank you for your beautiful word. We don't want to add anything to it. We don't want to take anything from it. We want to let the Word be the lion, and we just release Your Word into people's lives that it would change them forever. Father, there are people here right now who need Your Word. They've drifted, and they wonder, do You love them? Do You have a plan? Is there any way to get back? And Your Word says definitively, yes. And so in this moment, I pray they would come back to Jesus. Father, there are others who have never been with Jesus. They don't know Him. And in this moment, they need to hear the word. Anybody that comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And you'll make us whole. Make us whole today, Father. And we thank you for your word.
It's our foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.